we're looking at the, the uh, Sermon on the Mount started last week. We're going to keep on this for the next month or so because it's important. It's who we're supposed to be. It's like a constitution for the new nation. After our, our long look, it's time to take a shorter look and then work our way backwards from the mouth of Jesus our Lord. Do we have the picture of the books uh, at all? Is that? Yeah, there they are. I want, I, want, I like to give full credit. Uh, normally, when I write lessons, they're written just out of whatever's going on in my brain. But with the Sermon on the Mount, it's so important. I ask a bunch of theologian buddies of mine, what should I be reading before I speak of this? And these were three that they brought up. So I just want to, Randy Harris, very short book, uh, Living Jesus. Then a longer commentary book by Scott McKnight, in case you can't see these. And Studies on the Sermon on the Mount by Oswald Chambers, you could read on the way home. It's so short. But these, I want to give credit to whom credit is due. These people, plus, I'm almost daily emailing back and forth to some of my theologian friends and linguist friends saying, tell me about this. Tell me about the history here. Where's the, con the cultural context there? It's great to have a, a, a large believing community that can help you. But one thing that surprised me when I read the books was both Randy Harris and Scott McKnight said the same thing, and that is if you want to understand the Sermon on the Mount, you have to start at the end. You have to go all the way to the end of it. Now, that was odd for me, but I've since learned a lot of Semitic teaching builds up to a conclusion that then you're supposed to have to understand the first part of it. So, what was the conclusion? It's the bet with the song and the hand motions you learned when you were at VBS a long time ago. It's in Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 24. Therefore, therefore, every time you see a therefore, you need to look what it's there for. And that's what we'll be doing in the, in the weeks to come. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. Starting at the end, Jesus sits down, gathers his followers around him. They're about to be told how to follow Jesus. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it look like to be a Jesus person? And you might be surprised. Because he talks a lot about obedience. We talk a lot about grace. And I think that's, one, we are saved by grace through faith. We know that. We're not saved by doctrinal perfection. We're not saved by our works. We know that. But I think sometimes we were in churches that were works, 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 and guilt, 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 guilt. And so we swung so far talking about grace, we forgot that Jesus does demand obedience. He does demand that you walk in a certain lane if you want to call yourself a Jesus follower. When Christianity was new, it's interesting, the history of the Sermon on the Mount. When Christianity was new, the first couple hundred years, they believed we had to follow the Sermon on the Mount. You might say, well, duh, hang on. 
within a few hundred years, people began to look at the Sermon on the Mount as too hard to follow for the average person. It was really given to the super-Christian. It was given to the clergy. It was given to people like that. But the everyday person couldn't, couldn't do this. Well, when the Protestant Reformation came and grace ascended, many started just tuning out the Sermon on the Mount or watering it down to the point where instead of the Beatitudes, there was a book very popular about 30 years ago calling it the Be Happy Attitudes. It might be harder than that. It might be a bit more difficult than that. No wonder G.K. Chesterton wrote, The Christian ideal has not been tried and been found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Isn't that amazing? That's, that is amazing. He's not alone. Gandhi also said, he, lo I say, he said, I love your Christ. I don't like your Christians. And his, he would go further to say he believed Christianity was a great idea. It was a pity nobody had tried it. Because the Sermon on the Mount is hard. It's not easy. Matthew places this sermon in the highest place in his stories. He uses an ancient Jewish way of marking transitions. A series of sentences or phrases that indicates to the reader something important is about to be bookended right here. You need to pay attention right here. One such transition place is Matthew chapter five, uh, sorry, chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. Watch how the phrasing goes. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. You're going to see almost an exact mirror of this in the closing segment of Matthew's look at the Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, going to chapter 10, verse 1. It's almost exactly the same words. That's the bookend. That's the mirror. So what is Matthew trying to say? If you want to know who Jesus is, if you want to know what his ministry was all about, and if you want to know what it looks like to follow Jesus, start with chapter 5, verse 1, and read through chapter 9. We don't get that because we don't mark our stories like this, but the Jews did. So we need to understand what's going on here. God is calling, making a call on your life. He has a right on your life. Think of it this way. I'm married, so Cammy has a call on my life. If somebody goes, Patrick, would you like to go here and do this? Normally I can say yes, but if it's going to involve more than just a bet, my wife has a call in my life. I need to go to her and say, what do you think? In fact, she has veto power on my schedule. Schedule, sorry. <laughs> I'll learn talk good one day. Anyway, um, <laughs> somebody invites me to go speak at this place, that place, or the other. I don't just say yes before I speak to her. She has a call on my life. I, when I decide I'm hungry, I don't just start eating. I figure out, let's find a way that we eat together. She has a call on my life. All of that's a positive, by the way, an entirely positive. Jesus has a call 
on your life. He has the right to be involved. So we start at the end. The story of the wise men who built his house upon the rock. And we notice that Jesus is not telling them what he is about, but going further, telling them what they are to be about. Build your foundation strong. What are you built on? The book of Job should have given us a clue there because in the book of Job we're told, don't build your house, your foundation, on everything going well for you. Because then when things don't go well, what are you, where's your foundation? What are you built on? Let's go back to marriage. Many people, when they get married, really expect marriage to consist of sitting on the couch, watching TV together, eating brownies. It's a bit more complicated than that, isn't it? If you base your marriage upon, you know, she's beautiful, well, yes, she is. He's handsome. Yes, he is. That could change. That could change. There are things, there are awful, evil forces in the universe called gravity, um, things like this, aging and the like. But there's more. What about an accident? What about a disease? Then what is your marriage based on? Others say, well, you know, we're based on, it's kind of like a partnership. We both put money in the same pot. What happens if the money's not there? What is the foundation of your marriage? What is the foundation of your life? And Jesus is making a call on us saying, you want to follow me? You have to make what I say and who I am the foundation for your life. Nothing else. So when things go sideways or go terrible, you still have a foundation. I love the Caribbean. I, I enjoy going there every chance that I get, which isn't often, but when I go, I love it. But I look at some of those houses, and I realize the first storm coming through, these people are homeless. And then you see others that you think are ugly, but they're going to last. <laughs> they're concrete block and rebar. They're going to last. What is your foundation? On the news this week, there was a house for sale that they'd had to lower the price because the cliff it's built on out in Malibu has fallen away, so half the, half the house is out. And I'm thinking, who would buy the other half? <laughs> then I thought, let them buy it, because we need them to remove themselves from the gene pool. <laughs> Sometimes I think we warn too many people. Uh, we just, just let nature take its course here. When Jesus says, what is your foundation? There's a haunting question that comes. Will you follow him? For most of history, Jesus has had far more fans than he has had followers. They love him as a concept, but they don't follow him as our Lord. We, we want him to be Savior. Do you, will you accept him as your Lord? John Stott said this, so Jesus confronts us with himself, sets before us the radical choice between obedience and disobedience, and calls us to an unconditional commitment of mind, will, and life to his teaching. Anybody ever tell you that Christianity is easy and sweet? They're not telling you everything. I, I get bothered by triumphalism. Have you ever, you may not know the word, what I mean by that is you can go to some churches where it's all happy, clappy, and if you follow Jesus, your, your teeth will be straight and your kids will behave and everything will be perfect. When the fact is, if you read Scripture, 
when all hell breaks loose, it might be because you're doing something right. You might have annoyed some spiritual powers. You might have annoyed your neighbors. You might have annoyed the government. You might have annoyed whatever. But the point is, following Jesus can be hard. He never said, pick up thy comfy chair and follow me. And I wish he had. Because my natural habitat to the Scottish male is a lazy boy. Uh, I, and, and the thought that, no, that's not where you get to stay, that's kind of troubling. By the time Jesus had preached his sermon, he'd already traveled all over Galilee. He had already gathered many, many followers to him, like Moses. And when you read Matthew, you need to, you need to notice this. He uses terms, phrasing, and position to show you Jesus is the new Moses. None of the other Gospels do that. Matthew does it from beginning to end to help you understand he's the new Moses. When he walks up a mountain and turns around to tell them what the will of the Lord is, what did Moses do? Went up a mountain, got the will of the Lord, came down and told them what God's will is. Just as lawgivers in the time of Moses sat to deliver their decrees, Jesus sits. Nobody watching Jesus in the first century would have missed that connection. We do because our minds aren't wired that way. Everybody there would have understood what he is saying he, or who he is saying he is. Both Jesus and Moses found their people in a polytheistic morass, a mess of competing gods, competing sectarian thought, device, divide, uh, um, divisions because of politics. So both became lawgivers. Both did miracles showing they had the right to make these laws. Both promised a holy land for those who followed them. So we start at the end. We know the basic outline of the story, but those who heard it first would have seen something we miss. The reason Jews told stories like this is rather like those painters that you can sometimes see on Facebook or YouTube. And I, I find them fascinating. I find painters fascinating because I can see something and I can imagine it, but I can't put it on paper. I can't put it on canvas. And to see them, and they're doing this, 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 that, and the other, and these particular kind of painters, well then, you don't know what it is until the last mark. And I've seen some that'll even do the last mark, and you don't know what it is, and they reach over and they turn it upside down, and then it's, it's obvious what it is. That's what Jesus was doing on the Sermon on the Mount. He was leading them through, leading them through, leading them through, and then at the end saying, you follow me. You build your life on me. A while ago I said a polytheistic morass. What does that mean? It means we follow many gods. You might think, well, they did. Let's hold on. We sometimes build our lives on our finances. In fact, the Two major groups of commercials right now. One, you may die too soon. You'd best take these drugs. And the side effects are horrible, but you'll be alive to notice them. <laughs> Over here, you might live too long and outlive your money. They want to keep you terrified. Either way, that goes. Because then you become compliant. And we can worship our finances. We can worship our jobs. We can worship our relationships. We can worship our needs. I'm sorry, but anytime somebody starts with, 
but what about my needs? I kind of tune out because that becomes a God really quick. What about my needs? Well, I don't think anybody's depriving you of oxygen, so there you are. But no, we, we say, my, you know, my wife's not, not doing this for me, therefore I break. No, hang on. What are you based on? Where are your gods? What, what god do you have? I'll never forget a man that was in my office back when I ran a clinic. He was a leader in a church. And he was visiting prostitutes. And then he decided, well, I'm going to get married to another woman, not my wife. And he'd come into me to ask why he was depressed. And I'm going, um... Me, me, I, I know. And so I told him, no, you can't do this. And he says, but God wants me to be happy. I said, where did, where did you ever get that idea? He froze for a bit because he always assumed that. And he goes, well, he's our father. I said, got it. You haven't made a point yet. He goes, well, you're a father. Don't you love your kids? I said, absolutely. And he said, don't you want them to be happy? I said, no, I want them to be good. And sometimes that means I can't let them be happy because I have to help them be good. What are you based on? A happy, clappy God, that wants, a fluffy bunny God that wants whatever you want? Or the Lord, where you have to bow? You ever seen that thing on television? where Because you, you don't get to see it up close and personal because of that little fracas we had a couple hundred years ago. When somebody kneels in front of the queen and, and she does that little tapping with the sword thingy, you know, hey, you know, I call you, sir. You know, that sort of thing, right? <laughs> that was actually brilliant. It was like she was in a room. Oh, wow. Anyway. <laughs> why, why, why are they built kneeling down, and why are the sword tapping? It's a symbol of, I can take your head if I need it. And God says, we kneel down to our God. To no other, but to our God, we kneel, saying, this is yours. Do with it as you wish. That, when that happens, when the storm comes, you can survive. There's the old hymn, I'll never forget it. Um, we had some Americans come across to um, teach, to do some stuff there in, in the west of Scotland. And there was a time we were all gathered and going to trade songs. And one of the people uh, from America asked us to sing an old hymn called, Will Your Anchor Hold in the Storms of Life? You sing it different in America. You sing it kind of fast and peppy. He started, and the congregation began to sing slowly and swelling like waves. You see, he had come to an island nation. We know anchors. We know storms. At the end of the song, the American man that had started it said, Wow, it means a lot more when you guys sing it. That slow, kind of ponderous motion of the waves, will your anchor hold in the storms of life? And there's another hymn that comes, and we just sang it. Trust and obey. Do you trust them? It's kind of like that first time you had to jump in the pool to learn to swim. Do you trust the person going to grab you or not? Have a good look at them. Run this through the computer. I don't mind a three-year-old standing there going, I'm not sure. I don't, you don't have enough track record with me for me to jump. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. What is, how much do you trust here? These people are being called to obedience. Just like the people Gideon, Ruth, Joshua, 
the story of Jericho, countless others, they don't know the end story. But God does, so play your part. Play your part, understanding that God knows the big picture. Kind of like that ancient long ago movie, Karate Kid, where he had to learn to wax on and wax off. Do you remember that one, right? Half of you weren't born when that come, came out, and that's very depressing. But I would hope that your cultural education has brought you up to speed. He thought he was wasting time until it came time for combat, and he realized he had been taught how to survive. You might feel that there's no purpose in your life, that you follow Jesus, but you don't see much. You don't have to see much. He does the big picture. We just play our part. Forgive me for driving this home repeatedly, but it must be done because I have to remind myself of this daily. Jesus intended for us to hear the Sermon on the Mount and follow it. Not admire it, but follow it. But isn't it too hard? I may surprise you here. Yes. Yes, it is too hard. I don't think you can do it. Not on your own. I, don't, I know I can't do it on my own. I need the community. But I also need, I also need to recognize my need for the Spirit of God. Paul wrestled with this. Romans 7. Let's put that up. We know that the law is spiritual. Do we all agree? But I am unspiritual. I certainly agree. Sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. For what I, but what I hate to do, and I, if, I, you get all, if I do what I don't want to do, it's confusing, isn't it? Let's go. I, I agree that the law is, is good as it is. We'll read the rest of it. It is no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. We're going to pause right there, and I'm going to, I'm going to speak on behalf of the teenagers at this stage. Parents and grandparents and teachers will sometimes look at a teenager and say, Why did you do that? What were you thinking? And their response is basically, I don't know. Don't get hard on them, because they don't know. Paul didn't either. He was going, why did I do this? For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Everybody else? For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What wretched man that I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but my sinful nature is slave to the law of sin. I've often said, if he'd stopped writing then, we'd all be lost. Because who, who can challenge that? You, if you come up to me and say, you know, I've never experienced that at all, I'm going to ask you what else you lie about. We all struggle. And teens, you don't get tempted with fewer sins when you get older. 
you get tempted with different sins, and sometimes you get tempted with the same sins, you just don't have the energy to do them. <laughs> it's it's kind of like the old dog on the porch still wants to chase the car, can't manage it, but he watches him pretty close. We need God every step of the way. We need the foundation every step of the way. Romans chapter 8, first 11 verses. Let's put that up. Therefore, remember what it's there for, there is now no condemnation for who? Those who are in Christ Jesus. Get in Christ Jesus, people. Because through Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. The Spirit will help you who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Think about this. By the way, uh, guys up top, we're, we're going to shorten some things here because we're running a bit long. Don't get excited. I'm not done. Um, I'll just, I'm doneer than I plan to be, but not done, all right? Anyway, when you are faced with a situation, ask yourself, will I respond through the flesh or respond through the Spirit? Will I use the power of my own sin and flesh, or will I rely upon the community of Christ and the Holy Spirit of God? Make a decision. Think. Let's, let's move on. How do we access the Spirit? How do we get it? We get it at baptism. Acts chapter 2, verse 38 and 39. Let's get it up there. Acts 2, 38 and 9. And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You want help? You want help getting through this world? Bow your knee to Jesus, be baptized, receive the Spirit. The promise is for you, your children, and for all who are far off, all whom the Lord our God will call. By the way, if you're wondering, did the Lord call me? You're in the room, aren't you? Yeah, this is no accident. You're here because God has a call on your life. Once we have the Spirit resident in us, we, we need to remember to go to Him daily. Ephesians 5, verse 8, You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. The Bible even says further, Don't be drunk with wine, but be drunk with the Spirit. That's interesting phrasing, isn't it? Mark, I'm going to step off, let you get some time to bring your, your team up. Do all that interior reorganization one must do. It says, don't be drunk with wine, but be drunk with the Spirit. What does that mean? Drunk, do, the word drunk in Scripture is pretty much the same word as glutton. It means overfilled. Overfill yourself with the Spirit. Far too many of us want just enough Spirit to be saved. But not so much that we can't enjoy a good sin every now and then. God says, no, overfill. Overfill. And act so much with the Spirit 
that the world looks upon you as as weird as if you were drunk because of what you do and the way you live your life. They don't get it, but we do. Would you stand, please? It all starts with faith. It all starts with baptism. And you can talk to anybody here about what it means to be baptized and how and when. They will take care of you immediately. We don't wait, not if you're ready. But faith and baptism, the Holy Spirit, then we will truly be salt and light, a city set on a hill, citizens of heaven built on a foundation that will never wash away, regardless of which storms strike. Amen, church? This we believe.